welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Doug Lalone, partner at the law firm Fishman Stewart, located in Troy, Michigan, as my guest here today on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Doug is both an engineer and patent attorney, giving him a unique perspective with his work in architecture and engineering. He has successfully prosecuted and defended over 100 different intellectual property lawsuits in numerous federal and state courts. His cases have covered patent, trademark, trade secrets, unfair competition, domain name, non-compete, and copyright infringement claims, which we'll talk about a lot today. Additionally, Doug has prosecuted hundreds of patent applications on numerous consumer and industrial products for companies and routinely conducts brand clearances and prosecutes trademark applications to help clients protect their intellectual property positions. For full disclosure and importance of this conversation, Doug and his firm represent my firm, Mancini Duffy, on our patent application for our virtual reality software called the Tool Belt. Fishman Stewart is a premier specialty law firm celebrating its 25th anniversary in in the practice of intellectual property law. They believe that creativity should be managed in the same way that companies manage their physical capital. I love that. Doug, thank you for agreeing to be on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and, you know, hearing your perspective on our industry. Um, I'm sure the audience is going to learn a tremendous amount. Every time I talk to you, I learn a lot. So, <laughs> Well, thank you, Christian, for having me on today. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about how our intersection of intellectual property law interfaces with your area of expertise uh, architectural. Yeah. So, so I'm interested in your kind of path from engineer to attorney. Um, kind of take us through that, that journey. And so we can kind of set the stage. Yeah, sure. I uh, love to do that. So I'm a, a Purdue engineering grad. I graduated in 1986. Uh, my background started off in computer engineering and I switched over to mechanical engineering uh, technology, which is my background and degree from uh, Purdue university, uh, while working, uh, uh, as an engineer at Navistar, the trucking company that makes the big heavy duty trucks we see rolling down the road, they now call it Navistar. I worked there for a few years and I realized uh, there's this thing called intellectual property law. Uh, one of the guys in my engineering group was taking night classes and I thought, well, what is this all about? So we explained a little bit about uh, the intersection of engineering and law and Eureka, we get this thing called a patent attorney. And so that was the beginning of the end. That was uh, uh, the beginning of me uh, actually taking the, the LSAT exam about a year later. And then Eureka, within uh, two years, I was uh, attending law school at Valparaiso University. And it's a three-year program. So I matriculated there in 1991 with a Juris Doctorate's degree. Wow. So, so today, you have the intersection of both engineering and law uh, speaking with you today. What made you want to be an engineer originally? Well, um, our family has uh, creative people in it. 
Uh, my dad worked uh, for a military electronics company called Magnavox when I was a little kid. He designed circuit boards uh, for uh, ground-to-air missile technology. So I learned that in our household. My mom actually worked in a prototype shop, actually soldering and creating uh, circuit boards uh, in their prototype shop. So uh, I, I kind of had engineering around us within our family. So okay. it's, it's, uh, I would say it was family bread. And did you did you end up? So you did work as a mechanical engineer for a while. How how long about? About three years at Navistar, okay. uh, which they had an engineering facility in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Um, and it was a body design group is a specific area that I worked in, okay. along with a, a large group of other designers as well. Okay. Got it. So so kind of talking big overarching concepts, I have a, a whole bunch of questions I want to ask you, um, you know, as it relates specifically to architects and the, the law side of it. Um, I, can architects protect their ideas? And I know that's kind of a big question, but is that, can you protect an idea? Can an architect protect their idea? Legally, no, because the copyright statute says you cannot protect ideas. But you can, you can protect the expression of those ideas. That's a big distinction with a difference. <laughs> okay. So um, you can protect the, the concept of an architect coming up with a, a new building layout as is expressed on a piece of paper, which is how I started off in the 80s. I sat at a big drafting board with the other engineers, and then we migrated to CAD systems like unit graphics and, and things like that. Nowadays, your team of architects are now designing things on the computer screen. And uh, those things that they're creating um, are what's called uh, copyrightable works. And all that is, means is when you create a design on a CAD system, you're fixing it in a tangible medium. That becomes a copyrightable moment. Hmm. So those expressions are protected, but the idea of a building can't be protected per se, but it's the actual execution of how you express those ideas, I'll call it, on paper or in your instance nowadays, it's all by cab. Does that make sense? Can you give an example of that? Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> if I were to say, um, I came up with a, a eureka moment, uh, an idea of a building Let's put it in the context of a, an apartment complex where the building has 12 apartment units all having garages on the end. Well, that's a great idea. But the copyright statute says that idea can't be protected. But here's how we can protect it in your business. And that is how the draftsman puts the drawing in the lines, I should say, on the drawing and creates the, the building structure, shows the, the actual hallways going to the garages, shows the top view, the bottom view, the end view, the perspective view of the building, and all the interior room designs as well. When you put all that together and you put it in the CAD system, or if I was drawing it on a pad of paper, that expression, that is the, the resulting drawing, that is protectable under copyright law. Interesting. Okay. So I, I got it now. Okay. Yeah. And so <laughs> I should probably just tell you what the definition of a copyright is. Yes. I was going to say, what is what exactly is a copyright? I mean, yeah. I think we all kind of know it theoretically, um, but I'm, I'm sure it's more involved. Yeah. So um, in our business as a registered patent attorney, we typically have a lot of different tools in our tackle box for protecting innovative assets. We look at patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets. In our specific conversation here today, we're going to focus on copyrights. A copyright, by definition, is a uh, an expression that is fixed in a tangible medium. Period. Okay. Pretty simple. So, 
uh, let me give you some uh, examples. For example, your picture here uh, with you, uh, the Anti-Architect uh, podcast series, that picture, that, that image is protectable. Um, computer code, we have a lot of um, clients that are middleware, software designers. Computer code, that is the lines of code as typed on a computer is fixed in memory. That is protectable because the computer code is, is fixed in a tangible full expression, that is in the hard drive of the, of the computer. A, um, like on my wall here, you'll see pictures. Well, if you walk into the DIA, which is our art institute in downtown Detroit, you'll see copyrightable work all over because someone, an artist, took a paintbrush or a pencil and put it on canvas or paper and created a really interesting drawing. The instant they created that drawing or painting, it became a copyrightable work. Those are just a few examples of the types of copyrightable expressions that are protected. There are many more. So now let's say, let's take that painter as an example in that painting. Let's say I do a version of that painting, but I change the colors. Am I infringing on that copyright? You could be. Now, it depends on a couple of things. One, that work may be in the public domain. For example, the Mona Lisa. Mm -hmm. You know, copyright law doesn't protect things of that ancient historical type time period. Okay. It's in the public domain. So you theoretically could, you could go down to the, um, uh, the local art shop, find a, the Mona Lisa, and paint your own version a different color, and that would be acceptable, and you would not be infringing because that copyright of that work is in a public domain. Now, does oh. the is the copyright transferable out of the country? So, if uh, you know, if I have a copyright in, or, or even let's take it more granular, right? Uh, if I have a copyright for, you know, the anti architect, but I registered that in New York, is it copyrighted in New Jersey as well? And then is it only in the U.S.? And how how far does this kind of expand? Excellent question. So um, again, I'm looking at your <laughs> handsome picture of you with your ad for anti-architect. So embarrassing. <laughs> if, if you were to file a copyright application to protect it, you would own that image and it's a federal right. Okay. So, and, and again, copyrights are a federal right granted by the federal government. So we actually would file an application in Washington, DC. That would give you rights to exclude others throughout the entire United States. So your, your federal copyright covers all the United States, but it doesn't necessarily uh, cover your right in other countries around the world. Now, there's this thing called the Berne Convention, which is a convention which some countries abide to, and they may give you reciprocity. In other words, um, a, a foreign country may give you um, a benefits of your U.S. registration in their home country, but it's okay. all country specific. It is. Okay. And I assume it costs money to do that kind of per yeah. country. Okay. Right. Exactly. Just like uh, in the patent process, you mentioned the patenting your your tool belt. Yep. Uh, well, that was my next question. What exactly is a patent versus a copyright? And obviously, right. again, it's like another thing where I think we would all sort of know, but obviously right. much more involved. Right. So let's just uh, talk about patents for a moment. Um, a patent is a different type of monopoly that we have in our tackle box that we use here at Fishman Stewart. It, that actually uh, is a monopoly that allows you to protect ideas, uh, for example, machinery. Um, it may allow you to protect the ornamental expression of something. For example, there could be a design patent. There are many different types of patents. 
you could have a plant patent. That is Monsanto Corporation has lots of patents on corn seed, wheat, et cetera. You could have a design patent, for example, the, the screen outputs of your software. For example, if you're an architectural firm, you create an interesting app on your phone and you have interesting graphic user interfaces, we call them GUIs. You can actually get a design patent on your graphic user interface hmm. or other screen outputs that are on your web-based operating system, okay? Now, in your case, we file an application, a utility patent application on uh, the tool belt uh, concept, which basically speaking, it's published. So your application is published, so we can talk about it to your audience. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a utilitarian thing that allows uh, an architect and a customer to go into a virtual room using a headset, and you can have a collaborative design experience. Your client may be setting in France and mm -hmm. Paris. You could be setting in your studio, New Jersey, New York. You could have an online virtual collaborative experience using your tool belt tool. And with that, you are creating a building design, even though your client may be thousands of miles away. Mm -hmm. Correct. So that is a, an example of a, a patentable type of subject matter. Uh, in today's standards, uh, that's a patentable subject matter. The most common things you think of in Detroit, as far as patentable things, you think of Henry Ford, the Model T, automotive components, you know, hard things we can hand hold in our hand uh, are types of things that people typically think about being patentable subject matter. Well, the envelope is pushed way beyond that to now things created in virtual reality platforms are now protectable. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that is, a, it's another medium, right? I mean, it's another thing. Yeah, and, and the difference between the monopoly and a patent is the patent monopoly, if you're afforded a patent, asks, lasts for 20 years. It's a pretty long monopoly. Mm -hmm. Your copyright monopoly on expression uh, can last for 70 years. In some instances, it could be a little bit longer. So the monopolies have different links, different terms. Okay. But more importantly, they protect different things. So in, in the context of your patent application on the tool belt, the patent monopoly, once it matures into an actual patent, gives you right to stop other people, that is exclude other people from making, using, selling, and offering for sale the actual invention as it's claimed in the patent application. Okay. So it's a monopoly to exclude other people from doing certain things. That's a pretty powerful monopoly. Absolutely. And and we, you know, we knew we were onto something special, right? So we wanted to protect it. Our whole thing was how do we protect ourselves here? We put in so much effort and time and money and uh, you know, how do we how do we protect ourselves? And that's kind of how we got introduced to you. And I but I will say, you know, in kind of going through this process, I learned a lot, especially on the patent side. And what I didn't I still don't quite understand is sort of the secrecy that you need to be that needs to be around a patent, right? That you you can't have it out in public for a certain amount of time, and if you do, it's no longer patentable. It's just kind of out there as an idea, I guess. And so this is where I then get confused. Well, if an idea isn't isn't you know if you can't copyright an idea, then how after you know within a certain time can I and and things like that? So yeah, well, let me just address the, that point. So you raise a very important point about patent law. The patent office and the courts give you a one-year grace period to get your idea on file, i.e. a patent application. We call it patent pending. Mm -hmm. 
If you go outside of that one-year window, that idea essentially is in the public domain and you, you're precluded from getting a patent. There's a statutory bar thing called Section 102B of the patent statute, which basically says, if your idea has been out there for more than a year, you for, you've, you've foregone your opportunity to filing a patent and getting a patent on it. So the patent office and the government essentially wants to motivate innovators to file early within the one year period so as to preserve those rights and comply with the statute. Okay. Now let's, let's say you file, you, you can't file because, oh my gosh, I, I went past the one year mark. Now we, we know your tool stats is driven by something called computer code, right? And it, it goes through a compiler and it gets executed. And Eureka, you can see a graphic user interface as a result of what's happening behind the scenes. That computer code can be protected by copyright law. Remember at the beginning of our conversation, I said one of the many things copyrights protect includes computer code mm -hmm. that programmers create. So you could still file a copyright application even if you're one or two or three years down the road and have you blown your deadline for filing a patent application, but you could file a copyright application which would protect the computer code from being copied. Okay. And, and when you file a copyright application on a computer code, there are some filing requirements. It's not too onerous, but the filing requirements uh, result in protecting the code as well as the GUIs, the graphic user interfaces. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of, kind of getting like a two for the price of one when you file a copyright application on the computer code. Interesting. So don't fret. If you, if you <laughs> miss your one-year deadline on the patent side, you can still try to get some type of protection. It's a different type of protection, different term of the monopoly, different scope of the monopoly, but still you, you can still try to get something protected uh, in that instance when you've missed the one-year deadline for filing a patent application. Interesting. So, so kind of bringing it back around to the architect side of thing, what are some common mistakes that architects make uh, in terms of protecting themselves? Yeah, there are three common mistakes uh, that kind of pop at the top of my mind that I have seen architects make over the years. And I've been handling architectural infringement cases for going on almost three decades now wow. uh, as a patent attorney. Um, some of the, one of the, I would say, key mistakes I see that architects make, and that is they don't appreciate the fact that their creative works can be protected under copyright law or even patent law. So they, they don't have an appreciation for the fact that these innovations they're creating, these new concepts fixed in a tangible medium, that is a new drawing, a new design, a new building, a new apartment, a new condo, a new space for a new motel, what have you, they don't appreciate the fact that that can be protected. And that's, that's an intangible asset versus a hard asset, maybe the building itself. Mm -hmm. Or in your, if I, when I walk in your office, I see computer screens, I see a building, those are hard assets. But the intangible assets, the, the things that are created by your architect's mind as a result of their creative works, those creative works can be protected by copyright law. And many architects just don't understand that uh, those innovations can be protected. Yep. Interesting. The, the second thing I would say is a common mistake is that most architects don't understand the power and benefit of copyright law. It's a very inexpensive thing to file a copyright application to protect your computer code, to protect your screens, your outputs, your GUIs and things like that. It's a very inexpensive process, especially compared to an expensive patent application as you've come to appreciate. Patents are very expensive. Yep, absolutely. How much does the how much does a copyright 
typically cost? On a computer code, maybe $2,000 to prepare and file an application. You may have some follow-up expenses. Okay. If you have rejections or calls or hearings or things from the copyright examiner, they always like to complain about something. So you don't get some sort of pushback. It's like the building department. <laughs> exactly. It's like working with the building department. You're going to get, you can plan on getting some kind of pushback right. by the building department and the copyright office. <laughs> but this point number two here is I think architects just don't fully understand the power and benefit of a copyright registration. So let me tell you a couple of those benefits real quick. If you want a copyright registration, that um, puts the world on notice that you own that, that creative work. If it's computer code, then that's prima facie evidence that you own it. You have title to it. More importantly, you have title to go into court and enforce it. Hmm. In other words, if you don't have a copyright registration in hand and somebody infringes your work, you can't get in court. You need that copyright registration certificate as a get into court ticket to get in front of a judge to say, hey, this person over here is infringing my code hmm. or they copied my drawing or they've, they've lifted my marketing materials, my marketing plan, or they've, they've listed, lifted our sales presentation that we gave at a big conference. Whatever, whatever the work happens to be, you can't get into court and make a complaint because you have to have that first. And by the way, federal courts have exclusive jurisdiction. There's no such thing as a common law or state trademark. You can't go to state court to enforce uh, a copyright issue. It's all in federal court. Hmm. So that's, that's the second thing I think architects just don't understand the power <laughs> benefit of having a registration, which is a fairly inexpensive thing to procure. And if you think about it, if your design team, putting in context of your business, if your architects are spending many man hours creating new designs to solve a problem for a customer, one of the ways you get benefits of that is hopefully your customer pays you mm -hmm. for, that, for those design concepts. Another way of being rewarded for that R&D effort, that innovation, that work, is to make sure you perfect title to it and you own it. And you do that by filing a copyright application. So it becomes another asset of the company by getting your copyright registered because that is an asset, an intangible asset of the company, which they can say, here's another asset, just like a patent can be an asset. Mm -hmm. And sometimes banks will loan against intellectual property assets. Interesting. If you have a large portfolio of intellectual property, whether it's trademarks, copyrights, patents, et cetera, trade secrets, and you can show that on a schedule, some lenders will loan against- Yeah, there's value. Assets. Yeah, there's value to it, absolutely. Exactly, they increase enterprise value. Hmm. So um, I think architects misunderstanding the power uh, on the benefit of a, a registration or a book of registrations around a pool of assets is often misunderstood. And I would say just the final thing, and that is a common mistake architects make, and not only architects, but other companies that create creative works. For example, a lot of programming companies, middleware companies, a lot of our software companies, the company thinks they own the copyright in the work because they have the code. But here's a little hidden secret about copyrights. If you have an architect that's not an employee, but they're a 1099, so they're a contractor, mm -hmm. that contractor is creating a unique design for you to solve a problem. And you, you may or may not be employing contractors, I don't know. 
But under copyright law, a contractor owns the copyright in his or her works. Really? The instant they create it. By contrast, an employee, so your team, Jeff, and all the other mm-hmm. architects at your team that are employees of the company, works created by employees, which are fine, you know, they get a W-2, right? right? That means that work is automatically owned by the company by operational law. Okay. It's considered a work made for hire. Okay. And a common mistake in, in uh, our area is people write into a contract and say, it's a work for hire. Well, that's interesting. If they're an independent contractor, that, that doesn't solve the issue. The independent contractor still owns the work. The design drawing, in your instance, as opposed to an employee who's creating it on the clock, that's his or her job in no, normal course of business, then that employee, by operational law, is transferring the copyright to you, the copyright owner, Mancini Duffy, mm-hmm. and Mancini owns it without any further assignments. Okay. So there's a savings grace. What do you do with the independent contractors? It's simple. We have a standard one-page assignment that we would hand to the employer and say, hey, before you pay the outside contractor the last bill, their last invoice, please have them sign this assignment, which transfers their copyright from their bucket to your bucket. Right. From the, the, being their personal asset to be a Mancini intellectual property asset. Once they sign that assignment, then you own the copyright in the design or the computer code. And then you have you have perfected title and, and then you can file the copyright application. Got it. Okay. In that instance. So that's the third, third item. And that is most architects, I don't understand who actually owns the intellectual property when something is created. And contract law can kind of help clear and clean up that uh, situation if it becomes an issue. So now what happens? Um, actually, one more question before I ask that, kind of what are the consequences of infringing on a, on a, on a, on a copyright or a patent? What, what happens if you unwillingly infringe, right? Like let's say I, because I went to you know, I don't know, Detroit, and I saw a space or a staircase within a space that I really liked. And that was 20 years ago. And I sat down, I thought, oh, my goodness, I I have this great idea. But it turns out it really was just somewhere logged in in my head um, from something I had seen before. And it turns out that I essentially copied, you know, someone's protected um, design. You know, what what happens in that situation? Right. So let's say you are an infringer. Let's make that an assumption. And I know you're a good guy. You would never do that on purpose. <laughs> but let's take two buckets. If you're an innocent infringer, then there are damages, which are less than if you're an innocent infringer. And then if you're a willful infringer uh, under the copyright statute, there can be enhanced damages. If you are knowingly infringing somebody else's work. And so that's why we suggest if you're the creator and the copyright owner, in public, I, re- I suggest you always use a proper copyright notice. In this case, I would I would say it'd be a circle with the letter C, 2021 Mancini Duffy. That would be a copyright notice that would have you and your team put on their drawings, their sketches, their work, um, the login screen to the tool belt, uh, sign-in screen, things like that. If you have that notice on there, it's hard for, anybody, for somebody to say it was innocent. Mm-hmm. So as a, uh, I would say as a good measure, 
Aaron decided putting a copyright notice on your works. Now you can put that copyright notice on your work without having filed an application, without having talked to your copyright attorney, anything like that. You could you can put that notice on there the instant your team creates the work. And that's legit. That's okay. Really? Okay. Yeah. Now, let me answer the rest of your question. That is, <laughs> what if you infringe? So um, most of the time what happens when we're on the plaintiff side or defense side, and I've handled hundreds of these types of cases on both sides of the fence. I've tried plaintiff's cases and defense cases on copyright issues. Typically speaking though, early in the process, you'll get what's called a demand letter, a cease and desist letter from the plaintiff, from the copyright owner. I had this recently happen to a client. I won't name any names, but I pushed back in that case. And I said, Mr. Alleged Plaintiff, show me your copyright registration and show me your deposit materials. Prove to me that you actually own what you're saying you, you own. Right. They wouldn't do that. <laughs> they didn't want to spend the money and time to do that for different reasons. Okay. So we agreed just to take down off the website, the thing that they were mm -hmm. complaining about. And um, it went away. We played nice. No money was exchanged. That's the bulk of the, the outcomes, I'll say, in copyright matters is you get a demand letter. You say, all right, sorry about that, mea culpa. I won't do it again. I'll, I'll repent. I'll go the other direction. And no harm, no foul. Typically speaking, if there's like no money or very little money involved, the plaintiff will just walk away and say, okay, you promised not to do it again. We're going to keep an eye on you. Mm -hmm. But uh, let's just uh, let bygones be bygones and they walk away. That is the majority of the time. Let's fast forward and let's say it's a case where there's big money. Let's say it's a case where uh, somebody's actually copied the building design and it's a 12 plex condo buildings. And maybe there are dozens of buildings on a, a hundred acre campus where there are hundreds of millions of dollars at issue. Now we're talking about real money. Yeah. So the damages in a copyright case can be a couple fold. One, you, the plaintiff, can ask for statutory damages, which the, the court can assess up to $150,000 per act of infringement. So if it's 50 buildings, the judge can go 150 times X number of buildings. Wow. That can be a, that can be a big ticket. Oh, yeah. If, it's, if you can qualify for statutory damages, you can also ask for your attorney's fees as a plaintiff. So you can, you can uh, get your, your attorney's fees back, which can be very expensive. I'm sure. You could, spend, you could easily spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a copyright case. They're very expensive. <clears throat> That's one extreme. The other extreme is you could ask to disgorge the other party's profits. So if I made $50,000 of building and profits, and after an accounting was done, and that was the true profit, then I could be forced to hand that money over to the plaintiff and the plaintiff uh, would be made whole, so to speak, by virtue of disgorging me of my profits. Okay. And do you get to decide which one you're going after ahead of time? Okay. You do. You okay. get to pick door number one or door number two. Okay. There are, all, there are some other little damage quirks mm -hmm. in there. But one thing I'll say about statutory damages is you do not qualify, you cannot qualify to get statutory damages unless you've actually filed your application for the copyright itself within 90 days of publication of your work. Okay. So from that standpoint, there is a, a timing thing under copyright law. And as a rule of thumb, you want to file your applications within 90 days of taking your design to market, publishing it, selling it, offering it to sell, rental lease, et cetera. So 
when in doubt, file your application early and often. And do you always need an attorney for this or can you, for copyright, is that something that you can do yourself? Is that something you can use these sort of online services? I know I met my sister-in-law is an attorney. She'll tell you that those online services are terrible. But, you know, for something, you know, that is small, let's say, what what is your recommendation on, on that side? Right. Yeah. Typically speaking, um, the copyright application process is fairly simple. And what we do for clients is we will teach them how to do the first one. So let's say you're a builder. We represent a number of builders back here in Detroit. We would teach their internal team how to file one or two applications, one on the building design and one on the blueprints. We haven't even talked about the different types of copyrights there are. <laughs> but we will teach them how to file a couple applications. We'll train them. They'll see the process, and then they will implement their own strategy, filing strategy on an annual basis, and they can do it themselves. Okay. Well, that's, 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 very the that's a very that fair. That's a very fair approach, yeah. Yeah, that way they're being trained properly. They, they can experience the process and it's only a few thousand dollars, like I indicated to you, typically speaking, to prepare and file the application. Mm-hmm. Once they learn, they can just implement the program and carry forward Okay, the process. Very, very interesting. So what are the, the different copyrights that you mentioned? Lucky you should ask. <laughs> so let's go back to um, a building. Again, let's say it's a 12-plex condo building. Now, um, back in the olden days, let's say pre- 1980, um, actually 89, you could get an application, a copyright application on the blueprints. So if you go around to a construction project, there's going to be a roll of 30, 40, 50 sheets of blueprints with all the different sections and all the views mm-hmm. that the contractors work off of for bidding and construction purposes. Now, are they, just to interrupt you, are they legally called blueprints? Is that is that a legal term? Because we, I mean, obviously we don't we don't do blueprints anymore. You know, it's obviously all computer generated and, and all of that yeah. sort of stuff. And sometimes we don't even issue. Well, it depends, but we don't have to necessarily issue physical, you know, hard copies of stuff anymore. I mean, most of it, especially post pandemic, yeah. everything's emailed and digital digital stamps, the digital applications, digital everything through department uh, building departments, yeah. stuff like that. So. Yeah. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but so it's not That's, a blueprint. Yeah, I, I'm dating myself from working okay. at a dressing table back in 1986, 87, 88. So, so um, it's a design drawing. Okay. Or the designs, and they're fixed in tangible medium. So in your your situation, you may ship off uh, a slide deck uh, or set of drawings. Could have sheets one through fifty. All fifty of those sheets of drawings, I call blueprints. Mm-hmm. really design drawings or what have you, those drawing sheets would be submitted to the, the copyright office along with a fee <clears throat> and an application we fill out. That becomes part of the filing materials with the copyright office. So you may have artist renderings. Hmm. Let's say you want to you buy a new house, you go through a model home, you go through the gale of homes and you walk through 1020 homes and you walk through each house, you get the floor plan and a, a external visual of what the, the artist rendering is, if you were to have the house built. Even those one-page handouts, those are protectable. Hmm. All those things can be protected by the copyright office. Sometimes we'll file both to protect both uh, types of assets because they're all creative assets by your design team. Okay. So getting back to the first type of copyright application, I'll call it the design drawings or renderings for a new 12-plex for a building. Those can be protected. What that does is it 
it gets you a copyright registration on the design drawings and it prevents somebody from replicating the design drawings. Okay. Now typically you get those by going through an open house or I've had defendants go to the city, fill out a FOIA request. The city has to hand, hand over the documents for a certain house and a subdivision because it's a government document and it's subject to a FOIA request. So even a, a defendant can fill out a FOIA request and get the whole set of blueprints. And I've had that happen before where the second builder and architect, the defendant in one of my cases, went to the local building department and did a request and got my client's blueprints. Hmm. We sued them for infringement. And after a, a bench trial, we prevailed. Oh, wow. And, uh, and received damages against the homeowner, the architect and the builder. Wow. Even the homeowner, huh? Even the homeowner can be liable <laughs> if he or she um, is is a contributor to the infringement. Interesting. So that's the first kind of uh, copyright, and that is on the design drawings themselves. Let's talk about the second kind of a copyright, and that is on the building design itself. So the 3D building structure. So let's say you decide um, you want to walk through a building. You don't have the blueprints. You don't have the brochure, but you walk through the building with your design team and you have your sketch pad, probably graph paper, like <laughs> I used to use as an engineer, you just start drawing out neat things. You start, you're creating your own drawing. You're not copying somebody else's drawing, but you're walking through the building and you're sketching it out. And you're a great draftsman, your team is great. And you can, you've basically blueprinted <laughs> the building by spending a day walking through it, okay? The outside view, the inside view, the individual building units, how the bathrooms are, the hallways are, the garage size, the doors, all that stuff. You replicate it by creating your own set of prints, basically. You can take them back to your studio and you then create a nice formal CAD set of drawings, which becomes official drawings that you go to the city to get a permit issued thereon. Mm -hmm. That second type of copyright is on the 3D building design the reason Congress enacted the statute around 1980 on this yet second type was because people were doing just that. Sneaky builders and architects or homeowners, more importantly, were walking <laughs> through the plate of homes, sketching out their own drawings, liking this feature, that feature, by creating their own sketch, not copying blueprints, mm -hmm. technically not copying the plans, the drawings, but making their own, own sketches and handing them to their architect. That now is an infringement of the building design. So when an architect that's building out a commercial or residential space wants to protect their innovative assets, we will file both a copyright on the, the design drawings as well as the 3D structure itself and get both avenues protected. It's kind of like a belts and suspenders approach. Okay, so you'd have to protect both. You don't have to, but you can. You can. And if okay. you want a kind of a belts and suspenders approach to protecting the entirety of the asset, knowing how people may infringe, then we su suggest you use both avenues and protect both types of assets does, using the copyright law to its fullest extent. Does anyone ever go to jail for this kind of thing? Is this a criminal or is this only a, a, a monetary penalty kind of thing? It, there is a criminal section uh, in the, the copyright statute, which is uh, typically not used. It's typically something that the government would enforce, but in my cases, they've all been civil actions. Okay. So it's a civil infraction 
uh, to violate somebody's copyright registrations. What's the worst sort of outcome you've seen for you know infringement? Um, and without obviously revealing any names or anything, but what what's the worst thing you've seen? I, I've seen injunctions where people were stopped from um, um, further copying the infringing article or the design or the artwork. So uh, an injunction and then damages and then attorney's fees. Okay. That's a trifecta. <laughs> You're a defendant. That's a bad day in court. Okay, I'm sure. What are what are for the audience and and uh, I guess sort of for entertainment? What are some war stories that you can tell us? You know that directly relate to architects or engineers, and I think is probably good lessons on on both sides. Yeah. So um, I had a case once um, where uh, we went after um, uh, a builder, an architect, and a homeowner for infringing and copying our blueprints. And um, uh, our client was not satisfied with just a judgment and an injunction and money. They, uh, they pursued getting the architect's license revoked. Wow. With the state. So imagine if you're in the business of being an architect, you have a license requirement, just like I do as an, a, an attorney here in the state of Michigan. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we actually went to Lansing to the architectural licensing uh, division. My client filed a complaint. We had a hearing and we had the architect's license revoked for a period of time. Oh, wow. That was very painful. Come full circle years later, that architect was involved in a case where he was on our side of the case. <laughs> and um, it was an awkward situation where we were both on the same side of the fence. And he approached me and said, the day you had my license revoked was the darkest day of my life. Wow. That's quite the confession. He obviously didn't do it again. So there are serious repercussions to violating copyright law that can negatively impact you being able to practice your profession. Interesting. Wow. Wow. What are some other stories that you can, you can think of? Yeah. So um, what, uh, I'll just take you back to the one case where we had the, uh, the 12 plex building design. We actually had a two week trial in front of a jury in Detroit we were the defendants. They uh, sued my client and a series of other defendants for making similar looking 12 plex condominium units with six garages on each end with 12 condo units on the inside. So um, in that particular case, we um, put the, the designer for the plaintiff and their lawyer on the stand and we got them to keep using the term they copied my idea. They copied my idea. In other words, they were saying my client copied their idea. Well, come to find out, we did some digging ourselves. We went through the history of the, the copyright application and learned that the original filing of the application by the plaintiff was based upon a design that was in the public domain. Mm. And when something's in the public domain, you cannot get a monopoly on it. Sure. You should not get a monopoly on it. We found out that they were wrong in getting a monopoly on that idea. And the uh, ruling came back and said that that particular registration was invalid because the plaintiff did not disclose to the copyright examiner the fact that this 12-plex idea with garages on the end was in the public domain. Hmm. It was before it could be protected under copyright law. Okay. Wow. So, so, so that was interesting. And the other thing is, is 
Ideas are not copyrightable. We started that at the beginning of our conversation. The other side during trial kept pounding their chest saying, um, that idea is ours. They took it. Well, when you look at the copyright statute, ideas and, cop- and concepts are not protectable. Right. It's the expression of those ideas and concepts that are protectable once put in a tangible medium. So I guess a couple of takeaways there is even in copyright law and in lawsuits, you can uh, uncover technical defects in a plaintiff's case. And we did in that situation. Okay. And we were successful. So in another situation, in that, in that similar case, um, here's a case how winning gracefully um, uh, can pay off. Here we are, fast forward years later, the plaintiff in that case that we prevailed at has come full circle that now has hired us to handle their intellectual property matters. Right. And we were happy to oblige them and we have a great working relationship. That's great. That, so, make, that makes a lot of sense. As, as far as your firm goes, um, what else does your firm do? Is it, is it completely patent and copyright? Uh, we handle both patents, trademarks, copyrights, and trade secrets, okay. all in the technology areas. We're technology agnostic, but we don't handle chemistry and life sciences. We don't have a team that focuses on those types of innovations. Okay. But we do a nice job at handling lots of other innovations. And e- e-commerce is a big part of our practice, kind of like what you're doing with Toolbelt, mm-hmm. that whole e- e-commerce model and software and SaaS and PaaS enterprise uh, platforms. Um, are uh, a healthy part of our practice. And uh, so basically, if if you're touching innovation, uh, we handle lots of those different areas, including licensing of technologies. And also we we handle, uh, obviously, plaintiff and defense side of litigation as well. Okay. And um, has COVID changed your business in any way? It's changed how we talk with engineers and programmers uh, because we can now interface using uh, Microsoft Teams as mm-hmm. a, a tool. Uh, we've had to become smarter, more adept to using these tools. So it's changed our business in that, that regard. Okay. And we even have become kind of teachers to our engineering clients on how to use these tools. But it's been very effective. We're spending less time on the road, yeah. less times in plants, which are good and bad. But I think we're being more efficient. It's more cost effective for the clients being able to use these tools, just like you're using Toolbelt as a virtual tool to be able to collaborate in a virtual environment and create really cool things when people are in a, even in a different country. Exactly, it takes the takes the scheduling out of things. It, you you can do multiple meetings in in one day, uh, almost back to back, if you really want to want to push it, and you can accomplish so much more. Uh, as a result, so it's an interesting for me as the architect, right? We design space, you know, but maybe we don't need as much space, or you know, th- these these things are kind of opposed to one another. Um, but there's opportunities that that come out of it, which I find I find fascinating. So, right, yeah, and I would say just as a exclamation point, uh, and that is, companies are innovating more than ever, mm. and if you're not innovating, you may be getting left behind. So that creates a good opportunity for us as intellectual property attorneys, uh, we're innovation experts. We're experts at identifying, securing, and leveraging intellectual property. And so um, it really allows us to use the tools in our tackle box here at Fishman Stewart in a very creative way, and even in a remote way. Uh, So we're still able to help clients, even if we're not sitting in their conference room or in their plant. 
This is this is great. I, I, this has been a great conversation. I'm um, I'm so glad you took the time to to share with us. And and so my kind of last question is, you know, what what's the one thing you want the audience to remember about you? Oh, well, <laughs> uh, we have fun helping our clients identify and secure their innovations. And uh, it's not really a job. It's really it's a it's a fun collaborative effort, and uh, we enjoy doing what we're doing a lot. So um, just uh, keep the innovation coming. Yeah, it's absolutely. <laughs> well, and, uh, we look we look forward to working with clients of all walks of life. This is great, Doug. Thank you so much for being my guest here on the Anti Architect Podcast, and you know, for you know, guiding us through a process that we had absolutely no idea what to do from the very beginning. Um, you and your and your firm have been absolutely wonderful um, taking us through this journey. Um, and while yes, it is expensive, I will say anyone who's worried about the expense. Um, cause I definitely worried about that. It's an expense that actually is kind of spread out over time. Um, you know, it's not as though you kind of write one check and you wait years and, and kind of thing. So that even was a pleasant surprise to me. And, and the way that you guide us, guided us through this process has been, has been absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you for those kind of words, Christian. Happy we'd help you out and help, uh, Move the needle for the Mancini Duffy team. Yeah, I hope the audience learned a, learned a bit. I I certainly did. I always do when when speaking to you. So uh, to read uh, and see more about Doug uh, and the and the firm, their website is www.fishstewip.com. Uh, yep, fish2ip. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. Thank you again. I really appreciate it. <laughs>